of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be finishing up my look at Mark Twain's Mississippi uh, writings with uh, the tragedy of Puttenhead Wilson, a tale. Now, this novel was written about a decade or so, a little less than that, after the adventure of Huckleberry Finn. And it uh, is uh, about the color line, in part. It's also, well, it started out... Um, when Mark Twain first was thinking about this novel is he wanted to basically focus on a story about these uh, uh, Italian twins who arrive in in America. So it was kind of like a tourism story, a reverse tourism story. Um, and he was actually focusing on a, a pair of conjoined twins who were like big in the media at that time. And that's how he kind of started to frame the story. And then over time, it developed into a, a story more about the American characters. Now, of course, the, the Italian twins still play a major role in the center part of the story and help drive the plot a little bit, but it, it ended up becoming a story about the color line and therefore much, much more significant. It, and if we think about this as being written at a time when other writers are beginning to explore this theme of the color line, the writers we have looked at actually in this podcast, such as um, Chestnut, uh, Charles Chestnut, who wrote maybe most, um, most in a most detailed manner at that time about uh, the impact of the color line on, on black Americans in the years after Reconstruction. Uh, this one is set during slavery, so in this sense it's like the other Mississippi stories, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and even Life on the Mississippi is set significantly in the period before the American Civil War. If you take like the early flashbacks about his training on the Mississippi combined with his uh, thinking back on the period before the American Civil War. So it goes very nicely with those uh, those other tales. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about it. It's a, it's a relatively short novel, um, and I just kind of want to give my recommendation to you to, to read it, but I'm going to try to give you my review and uh, what I think some of the more important aspects of this novel are. Now, just to be honest with you, one reason I'm not going to say too much about Puttenhead Wilson is I, I kind of read it a while ago, and I sort of sat on it, and then now my head's like fully in Innocence Abroad, and um, and I'm kind of getting really into that story. I didn't think I would the first time I read it. I wasn't that deep into it, but I'm having a lot more fun with it this time. Um, but anyway, I still think it's important to to consider Puddinhead uh, Wilson. Um, now, it is a lot of fun. I think even if you just read through like the chapter headings, which are all like uh, um, little quotes written in Puddinhead Wilson's calendar, like he was writing down little aphorisms in his notebook or something. And they're they're clever and they're fun. And they're not that directly related to the plot. They're just little fun little philosophical concepts. So, you know, they're very sarcastic and, and cynical in the Mark Twain style. Um, for instance, uh, 
one of the most striking differences between a cat and a lie is that a cat has only nine lives. Or um, consider well the proportions of, of things. It's better to be a young June bug than an old bird of paradise. Uh, or uh, where else do we got? Or just this advice on writing we get here. As to the adjective, when in doubt, strike it out. Um, so there's actually some actually pretty good advice in these in these um, fun little throwaway um, statements. And our character of Put in Head Wilson is in many ways a minor character in the book. He shows up quite a lot, but he he's there at the beginning, and he kind of comes to this town, um, and he's. A, he becomes a lawyer, but he's really interested in uh, like fingerprinting, and that's like his quirk. Is he likes to take fingerprints of people, and that becomes an important like like solving the crime at the end, like solving the case and resolving it is his knowledge of, of fingerprinting. That's basically the mystery here of of the identity. Now. Um, it's also an important reminder of the brutality of slavery and the absurdity of Jim Crow segregation. It does both at the same time. Now, this is still in the early days of Jim Crow, but by the 1890s, it's being entrenched. It's being passed into law. Um, you know, after Reconstruction, there was uh, Jim Crow didn't wasn't a switch that was turned on overnight. It took uh, a couple decades to be fully implemented in southern states. And by the 1890s, it was being um, uh, well-established in most southern states. Uh, and of course, you have the Plessy versus Ferguson trial, which is worth mentioning. Um, this novel comes out two years after the Homer Plessy uh, arrest. So he was arrested, as you might remember, for purchasing a train ticket for a white car in New Orleans. And he, he was like a white first-class car um, at a time when segregation on the trains was being enforced. And Homer Plessy famously was one-eighth black and passed as white, or could pass as white. He didn't live as a white man, but he could very easily pass as white. So I think Mark Twain must have been influenced by this case of attempted passing when he wrote Put It in Wilson. Um, or he, maybe he was familiar with the works of Charles Chestnut. No, that really can't be the case. I gotta take that back. I think Chestnut was writing this stuff later. But the, the theme was in the air. Uh, I'm thinking of like The Wife of His Youth or um, House Behind the Cedars. Those were actually written later. So uh, Mark Twain got there first in a way, but certainly those ideas are out there at the time. Um, so, but certainly the Homer Plessy case was in, in the air and it, you know, on the headlines it might be black man, you know, challenges segregation I don't know what the headlines actually said but that's you know below the lead is that he was passing as white as far as it was to buy the ticket um, and then I think the story went is he confessed right away that he once the train started that he was black and basically he was um, you know urging arrest so he could challenge this in the courts um, but this story takes the concept of passing in order to show how ridiculous the color line was and how easily it could be shattered because of the nature of slavery itself. But also he sh gets into how destructive it could be, how, how truly vile the color line um, could be, um, as well as slavery itself. So he sets it in the context of slavery. He doesn't set it in, in his own time. So in that sense, it does pair well with like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, another anti-slavery, anti-racist novel set 
in the world of, of Mark Twain's childhood. But I don't think he could have written this before the emergence of Jim Crow. That's, that's kind of my guess here. Um, but let's take this quote, right? Uh, Tom had long ago taught Roxy. Ro um, Roxy's the kind of instigates the plot in a lot of ways. Um, so let me just read this quote I, I dug up. Tom had long ago taught Roxy her place. It has been many days now since she had ventured a caress of a fondling epithet in his quarter. Such things from a Negro were repulsive to him, and she had been warned to keep her distance and remember who she was. She saw her darling gradually cease from being her son. She saw that detail perish utterly. All that was left was master, master, pure and simple. And it was not a gentle mastership either. She saw herself sink from the sublime heights of motherhood to the somber depths of unmodified slavery. The abyss of separation between her and her boy were complete. She was merely his chattel, now his convenience, his dog, his cringing and helpless slave. He humbled an unresisting victim of his or, or her humble and irresisting victim of his capricious temper and vicious nature um so it, that kind of sets up what the story what happens in the story to initiate the plot the plot of the novel centers on a slave in the driscoll household named roxy who has a child on the same day as her master's wife the true tone looks similar uh roxy's son is one sixteenth black and roxy herself is one eighth black so after she, she's being threatened, being sold down the river, a theme just being regurgitated from Vengeance of the Huckleberry Finn, right? Where the news, the rumor of being sold down the river was going to push uh, an enslaved character to do a dramatic act of resistance against slavery. So this fear of being broken away from her home and family, so she decides to switch the babies. And therefore, her son grows up as a white man named Tom. So in this weird um, twist, she becomes essentially owned by her own son. Um, legally, um, or maybe illegally, I suppose, because the legality of this is something that's worked out in the story. Um, but he grows up as a white man named Tom and essentially becomes Roxy's master. Um, now, eventually, Roxy makes this known to Tom and Tom, uh, Tom's descent into crime and illicit behavior of various sorts and gambling and all that is urged on by this. But we see this like change immediately in the character when he realizes he's actually um, black and his entire attitude changes because he in, in, he has already internalized racist ideology and, and so much so that when he realizes that he's black, he begins to act in ways that reflect that race the racist stereotypes of the time so he's growing up white in a slave society and ensures that tom grows up into a quite odious person that's um partially mark twain's attention here is that the masters are not chivalrous uh, noble or anything they're actually just pieces of crap um he goes into debt eventually murders his uncle blaming these italian tourists who come and and fill out much of the bulk of the center of the novel. Without those Italian tourists, this novel would have been much shorter. It, it, it does kind of flesh out what's already a very short novel. But anyways, during the title, during the trial, I mean the titular character, put in Wilson, um, who's a brilliant lawyer, but he gained a reputation as being like the town idiot. Um, and th that name is like a poorly constructed joke reflecting that. Um, 
And through his lifelong study of fingerprints and this collection of fingerprints from people, including Roxy's children, the Driscoll child and others, Tom is revealed as a black slave, the property of the Driscoll's family. So in order to repair their losses, they sell this former master, now a slave down the river. And that rectifies his debts in a way. Um, now, at the same time, they, um, they restore the rightful Driscoll ale, heir who's been living as a slave this whole time, being raised by black slaves all his life. And he's much more mild, much more um, passive, kind, and, and he's basically good, right? Now, you imagine if that switch hadn't taken place, these characters in their positions would have ended up in the same place. The Driscoll heir would have still been an odious, disgusting person, and Rock, you know, Roxy's son would have grown up to be much kinder and submissive and things like that. So it's really a nature versus nurture kind of argument that Mark Twain's making. And of course, if you've read The Prince and the Pauper, he's, you know, you know he does this switch story before, right? So he cares very much about this question about what makes someone nobility, what makes someone a master. And it is if it's just bloodline, you know, somehow character like that, it's, it's not so much like character makes one a master. It's that being a master makes one odious, right? And one loses their characteristics because they're in that context. They're in that environment. Um, so how is one is raised in respect to these hierarchical institutions is, and how that forms their values is something that... Um, is is really the theme of the story, right? So um, I think I, it, was, it was years ago I saw this talk about a study that showed that when playing a rigged game of Monopoly, if you rig the game of Monopoly, the winner will become progressively more arrogant and indifferent to the other players and, and gleeful and arrogant about that. So, um, so this seems to be a psychological reality that happens all the time that people who are doing well even if they're not doing well out of their own efforts just luck right they become arrogant about that you know it's like the person who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth um will come to the conclusion that they earned it or they deserve it in some way and they'll have to justify that now if you can justify that through effort right like if your dad gives you a job in a company and you can use that. You can say, oh, I inherited this company, but I ran it, right? I, I earned it in some way. That's why I deserve this money. Or if you're in a race society, you can say, well, it's my whiteness, right? I, I, I have this birthright due to my race. Um, but anyways, we don't really know how Tom would have grown up if he had stayed a slave. But you guess he would have been like Chambers, the real Driscoll son being raised by Roxy, right? Um, now, one of the chapter leading quotes from Putting in Wilson's calendar states this same training is everything. The peace was once a bitter almond. Cauliflower is nothing but cabbage with a college education. So I kind of like that, but I want to say broccoli, um, maybe would be a better example. Of course, cauliflower just look like brains, but broccoli seems, um, more intelligent to me of, of, of the vegetables. Um, Twain's point seems to be that that the color line is kind of foolish, uh, especially and it's developing in the context of the Jim Crow laws and it's corrupting people. It's, it's codifying these lines which are going to influence people's behavior. Um, 
this is like a more radical claim at the time than it would be today. We, we take this stuff for granted today um, to the degree we are raised to at least reflect on anti-racist positions. Whether we become anti-racist or not, it's hard not to be exposed to those arguments any, anymore. And it was hard at the time, too, not to be exposed to those arguments, but there was more of a racist culture around people that could reinforce these views. But um, we often condemn people for not sharing our values, for instance, and it's hard to have empathy for people. And that's true in the color line, too, where people lack empathy because they sit on one side of the color line. So um, whether, you know, it's there's a broader application, I think, to the, the switch, right? You know, and this, this idea that who we are and our successes and failures, our psychology is a product of, of the context we're raised in. Um, so it's not like people have really warped senses of, of justice. They're not capable of empathy. Um, and that comes out of their, their background. So institutions cultivate our, our behavior and our psychology. And that's the, the argument being made in this novel, I think. Now, we have a lot here about the utter brutality of slavery. Uh, this is written, of course, in the, in the 1890s, a couple decades after the failure of Reconstruction. Slavery at the time was being presented by historians, white historians in particular, Confederate apologists, lost causers, as benign and progressive institution, which was less of a case when um, the adventure of the Huckleberry Finn was being written. Um, I, that deepened those those arguments were being begun but the like the lost causism is more of something that like the ideological underpinnings of Jim Crow and as that Jim Crow got deeper so did the ideology of neo-confederacy right the revived clan of the of the early 20th century and all that um, Twain is here remembering slavery as it was and of course black writers are doing that too but it wasn't as common among white writers who um you know, even if they were interested in black culture in a way, they, they might be interested in like me in the folklore or something. They weren't writing a lot about the brutality of slavery, which was being downplayed as an odious institution by writers. Now, the threat of being sold on the river, of course, is the heart of the brutality of slavery, something that overhangs everything, more so maybe than the physical violence, is that we're going to break up your family. It's one thing to be whipped. It's one thing to be physically punished. It's it's quite another thing to you know, have your children sold away forever, right? And this was a threat that could be used to maintain control, discipline, enslave men and women, and part of the psychological torture masters commonly used in, uh, in the plantations. So before Roxy decides to switch the children, she even thought about murder. Murdering her child is preferable solution to being eventually sold to plantations in the in the in the deep south in the face of this slaves had some means of resistance right they could um steal they could steal themselves which is what jim does um but this threat to steal to sell the slaves to the south was always more powerful than any resistance right which is why slavery eventually had to be destroyed entirely it couldn't be managed you couldn't resist your way out of it because of this ultimate threat. Roxy would uh, later, 
after she realizes what her son grows into, uh, use blackmail to extort money from her. Really, when basically she says, you're my son and I'll let everyone really know this. I have the proof. Um, and she uses this to, to extort money. It's kind of like stealing from her master. But this resistance has little force against the legal power of masters to violently destroy families because Tom eventually is sold down the river himself. So that wins out at the end. The violence wins in the in a way at the end of the novel, and it's it's kind of like an irony, but there's nothing really funny about it. It's nothing funny about Tom being enslaved, even if it's kind of balanced with with Chambers becoming the rightful heir again. I mean, Tom is still a slave at the end of the story where he began. He 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 ends the story where he began it. So there's more like no like moral redemption, right? And there's nothing really that that we should praiseworthy about Ch Chambers eventually becoming a master. Maybe he could be I don't know what kind of master he'd be. We're not really given that sequel that story. Um, now another theme here, and this is where maybe the Italian um, brothers play a bit of a role. I'm not saying too much about them, but you know they're there's some a lot there about perception and imagery and 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 wealth and status and and how they're perceived and 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 how image carries one i think this is actually a theme a lot that's quite strong in innocence abroad is kind of the, the fakeness of everything the artificiality of everything that's something i'm really excited to get into when i talk about those stories but if it's you know ultimately at the heart of it is this relationship between roxy and her real son and her adopted son and and the system of slavery itself. If a slave becoming a master and a master can become a slave just by changing hats, it's not really clear where the ownership of wealth really is here. Um, the wealth and power that comes from elite control is really just on a, a piece of paper. It's like the peasants with their rental agreement that they burned or whatever, thinking that would destroy the spell of our serfdom, you know, during the French Revolution or whatever. Um, but What's important here is it's being enforced by courts and law, right? The fiction is real. It's fictional, but it's really enforced by something very real, the power of the law, the power of the state. And it starts out the courts investigating this murder, but eventually it turns into a property transaction. Quote, they rightfully claim that Tom was lawfully their property and had been so for eight years, that they had already lost sufficiently in being deprived of his services during that long period and ought not to be required to add anything to that loss. That if he had been delivered up to them in the first place, they would have sold him and he could not have murdered Judge Driscoll. Therefore, it was not that he had really committed murder. The guilt lay with the erroneous inventory, end quote. So th there's a lot to unpack here. One is the eight years is when it became known by Tom that he was a slave. It was eight years after that. Of course, the theft was early on, right? It was Roxy did it initially in the switching of the hats. But did she really? No, because she just swapped one person for another. There's still a person in slavery. There's no really cost to the, to the plantation, I suppose. But, you know, this is kind of the perverse logic of property in general, of course. Like, whether it's land ownership or IP or anything else that's owned beyond its, you know, it, it's 
all land is stolen, right? Eventually. So all property is ultimately a myth based on conquest and, and violence. Um, this is why corporations can do these horrible crimes and just say, well, it's the corporation that did it. You can fine us, but there's no, no one's going to jail, right? So anyways, uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, it's really a good novel. It's morally very significant. And, and I think there's a lot to unpack in this, this story. Um, I haven't even really got into much about like the just the disgusting white people we meet throughout the story. It's it reminds us very much of Huckleberry Finn. Maybe that's why it's not that important to talk about because it's kind of been discussed at nauseum in that book. You know, the whole center part of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn is involved is is hovering around these these uh, these odious white men mostly, right? Some women too, obviously, but. Uh, you know, scamming each other, lynching each other. They're all cowards at the end of the day. It's it's really kind of uh, rough to read. So, uh, but that's here too, especially in Tom's behavior as a, as kind of a, just a scoundrel and an idiot and all that. Um, and then back to perception, we have the perception of Puddinghead Wilson as a Puddinghead. The whole name of the novel is is a, is a lie. It's it's a misperception. It's a misidentification. And that stuff's really fun. That's good Mark Twain stuff. But morally at its heart, this is eviscerating the logic of the color line at a time when it's being built up. It's being re-enshrined in, in America. So, um, yeah, check out this novel if you haven't. I know it's not his most well-known work, but at the same time, I don't think it's unknown. It's short enough, so I think it must have worked its way into some high school curriculums. But um, but I know it's not as I've often read as like Innocence Abroad or The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But yeah, check it out if you haven't yet. It's uh, it's a pretty solid novel and it's short. It's only about 100 pages. So anyways, that wraps up this look at Mark Twain's Mississippi writings. In the next nine episodes, I'll be looking at Innocence Abroad and Innocence at Home or, or Roughing It, as it's, as it's also called. That will, you know, we'll spend about five episodes on The Innocence Abroad and then four on Roughing It. Um, and then, then I think we're going to do like the medieval romances, but that's looking ahead a few weeks. So, um, anyways, it's been fun looking at the Mississippi, but, uh, I'm glad to get into Innocence Abroad. Uh, speaking of artificiality and falseness, I mean, that's what that whole book is about. It's been, it's done really, really well. It's, it's, uh, a great travelogue that I think still is very relevant to us today as we think about tourism and travel and what it means to us and what actually the experience of tourism is. So anyways, um, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. She's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff She raised a few eyebrows, and then she went on down low Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen